The Jodcast, a plethora of planets. With Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, November Extra Issue. Hello and welcome to the November Extra Issue of The Jodcast for 2008. Joining me here is Stuart. Hi Nick and hi everyone out there. And unfortunately Dave won't be with us again because he's still in India. But we have a message from Dave and we'll get to that in a minute or two. Coming up we have an interview with George Hobbs of the Australia Telescope National Facility talking about pulsar timing arrays and gravitational waves. We have Dave's favourite Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien. And of course we have your feedback. But first, before that, we have some breaking news. Yes, there's some breaking news. As of the last 48 hours, there have been some discoveries made. That's right. There have been two discoveries, both announced in the journal Science on the 14th of November. The first is by the Hubble Space Telescope, and this was an announcement of an observation of the star Fommelhout, and observations made in 2004 and 2006. And they've followed the star, which moves across the sky slowly. They've followed the star, taken the images and compared the images, and found a slight difference between them. And that difference is a planet orbiting in the dust debris surrounding the star Fommelhout. Now, it's long been known that there is a dusty debris disk orbiting this star since the IRIS observations in the 1980s. So it seemed to be a prime target for discovering an extrasolar planet going around it. What makes this planet discovery different from all the other planet discoveries found to date, and as we know there have been over 300 extrasolar planets discovered so far, is that we have got an actual image of the planet. So this is light coming from the planet, photons by from the, the planet. So, what's this planet like? Well, we don't entirely know. What we do know at the moment is that it's about three times the mass of Jupiter. It's located about 17 billion kilometres away from the parent star, and Fommelhout is actually quite a lot brighter than the Sun. So the temperature isn't as low as it would be in our solar system. But 17 billion kilometres, just to put that in perspective, is about ten times the distance of Saturn from our Sun. Right, so it's a planet orbiting quite some distance away from its host star. It is. It's quite a long way. What was interesting is that it's actually dimmed by about a factor of one and a half between 2004 and 2006. And we're not entirely sure why that is. There are some ideas as as what might be causing that, but it's still not entirely clear. Is that the planet appearing dimmer or the star? The planet appearing dimmer. Hmm. So that's, that's a mystery. But in the very same issue of science, we had another announcement of something very similar. This case, it was three exoplanets found around another star. This one was called HR8799, which is about one and a half times the mass of the Sun. And all three of these planets are larger than Jupiter. But what's incredible about those observations is that they were made from the ground, using the Gemini North and Keck telescopes, which is incredibly impressive, because they have to look through the Earth's atmosphere, which is wobbling all over the place, and distorting their images. So those those pictures are incredible when you realise what they've had to do to, to get them. It's fantastic, isn't it? And then we'll, put, uh, we'll put some of these uh, images and links to the press releases on the Jodcast homepage, but it's a very exciting time that we now have direct imaging of four planets. Now, uh, planets have been directly imaged before. There have been some images made of very large gas giant planets orbiting around brown dwarf stars, because that's mm. a lot easier, because the, the brown dwarf object is not um, um, producing a great amount of light mm. compared to a, a normal type of star. So the contrast between the photons reflected off 
the planet going around the brown dwarf and the photons coming from the brown dwarf itself is much, much lower, and therefore it's easier to discriminate between the object being a planet and the brown dwarf. Doing the same trick for a normal star, where the star is much more brighter than the light being reflected off the planet, is much, much harder. Therefore, it, was, it took a longer time for us to get images of these planets. So exciting times indeed. Speaking of planets, we are very pleased to announce the release of the next Jodcast video, which was filmed at the Royal Society Summer Science Exhibition earlier this year, and it's all about extrasolar planets and the discovery techniques by which we have discovered the 300 or so extrasolar planets to date. So do go please check that out. You'll find a link to the video on the front page of the Jodcast website. Do take a watch. It's very good. And leave us some comments. Now, the very first extrasolar planets were actually discovered around pulsating neutron stars, or pulsars. And Nick went to talk to George Hobbs about using pulsars as a timing array to detect gravitational waves. Okay, so you're here chatting about the work that you do on pulsar timing arrays. Tell us a little bit about what a pulsar timing array is. Okay, so a pulsar is a rotating neutron star. Uh, these are stars that spin around. They have very strong magnetic fields and out-of-the-magnetic poles. For some reason that's not quite clear, we get these beams of radiation. Every time the pulsar spins once, we get a flash of light, and it's a bit like a lighthouse in space. And that's what we call a pulsar. So as it rotates, we get these flashes of light, which we detect using radio telescopes. And in particular, the Parkes telescopes. Exactly. So I'm based down in Sydney, and use most of my time. I spend about a couple of days each month out at the Parkes Radio Telescope. It's the only large uh, single-dish radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, mm. and so it does quite a lot of of different types of research. This was the one that was in the movie The Dish, was it? It was in The Dish, and um, you can still buy buy things in the visitor centre there to say that I did not play cricket on The Dish. <laughs> <laughs> Is it true in your case? Have you ever played cricket in The Dish? I've walked around on The Dish, but I've never played cricket on it. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a, t a timing array? Right, so the timing array project is... The, the, the aim is to detect gravitational waves, so these are waves predicted by the general theory of relativity. As big masses, like big black holes, move in the universe, they emit these gravitational waves. The gravitational waves come through space, and they affect the signal that we receive from various pulsars. So a timing array project is to observe a large number of pulsars all around the sky, and to use the signals that we receive from those pulsars to try and detect these gravitational waves. So explain just a little bit about what is actually waving with a gravitational wave. <laughs> That's a really hard question. Um, it comes from a prediction of general relativity, which says that if you take a mass and you, you move the mass around in some asymmetric manner, then you'll get a wave in space and time. So it's a small fluctuation in basically the, the, the fabric of space and time that propagates out from the source at the speed of light, and it's that that we're trying to detect. Presumably these waves have some energy they associated with them. I mean, nothing in the universe happens just by itself, right? So these waves are being caused, as you say, by shifting uh, masses, which have gravity, and shifting them, they produce gravitational waves. So... How much energy is contained in one of these waves? Yeah, so the answer there is these waves are very, very tiny in terms of their amplitude. 
So gravitational waves can be very large. In fact, they can one wave can cover the whole universe. But the effect of the wave on, on us on Earth is absolutely tiny. So what would happen as one of these waves went past, let's say I had my arm out, is my arm would slowly get a bit longer, then a bit fatter, and then a bit shorter, and so on. So it would slightly affect um, measurements of length in, in that, that we can make. The, the biggest problem is that the changes in the lengths are absolutely tiny. So for something that's four kilometers long, if a gravitational wave goes past, it will only change its size by less than an atomic nucleus. So it's That's very, very small. hard to find. So, well, one, two questions arise from this. If you're trying to measure something getting longer, shorter as a gravitational wave goes past us, presumably we've got some kind of ruler that we're trying to measure, but won't the ruler get longer and shorter the same way? I mean, the gravitational wave affects everything it goes through, yes? Yes, so that's absolutely true. So if you just had one ruler, you couldn't do this experiment. So on Earth, um, various people in around the world have built what are called interferometer systems. So these are basically two rulers at 90 degrees to each other. So you send the light beam down basically two four-kilometer-long tubes. There's a mirror at the end of the tube which reflects the light, and when the and when the light comes back together again, you see if one of the arms is slightly longer than the other one. So as a gravitational wave would come past, it will be making one of these arms longer and shorter, and the other one will happen in a different direction. So by having two arms, you can actually detect these waves. And there are experiments, as you say, which are going to be trying to measure gravitational waves in this way. So LIGO is one, and yep. LISA is in the is the space version. So we've, we've spoken about the, that on previous episodes of the Jodcast, which is good. But how do we use pulsars to do the same trick? What specifically do we use about the pulsars to measure these gravitational waves going past us? So the problem with, with LIGO, which is this interferometer system on Earth, is that it's four kilometers long, which isn't, which is quite short for what you're trying to detect. So one way of getting around this is you put your detector in space, and that's what LISA is doing, and those arms are three million, million kilometers apart from each other. But you can, of course, go one step further, and our pulsars are you know, all the way across our own galaxy, so these are at much further distances. And But we need some way of measuring how the pulsar is moving, or the space-time is changing around the pulsar compared to the Earth. But we can do that because the pulsar is a very stable clock. It sends out, it rotates in a very regular manner, sending out these pulses of radiation, and if the gravitational wave signal is affecting space-time around the Earth or the pulsar, it means the pulses will seem to be arriving at the telescope a little bit later or earlier than it would be if that gravitational wave didn't exist. So we look at lots of pulsars, and we're looking for slight variations in when the pulses are actually arriving from when we think they should be arriving, and use that to say, oh, well, they're arriving in the wrong time. Maybe it's because there's a gravitational wave affecting affecting these arrival times. Okay, so we've got a method now for detecting gravitational waves. What's producing these gravitational waves? So the, it's most likely that these gravitational waves will be coming from merging supermassive black hole systems in the centres of galaxies. So we know that most galaxies do have big black holes in their centres, and we know that galaxies crash into each other, and these black holes probably coalesce. And during that coalescence time, they'll be emitting these gravitational waves that we should be able to detect. 
Isn't there a problem, though? It's been long known that if you take two galaxies and you throw them together, generally what's colliding are not stars, the things that we can see. And a black hole, yes, is a very big object, probably at the centre of each of these galaxies, but surely it's the same problem. What's the chances that you'll actually get a collision between the two black holes? Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's basically unsolved. What we expect will be happening is that the the two galaxies will come together, but it won't be a direct head-on collision in any sense of that. But then the black holes will be in a long period orbit around each other, but will start to kick out stars. Because they kick out the stars, they will lose energy, and the two black holes will go, go towards each other. So it's called dynamical friction, which is a method of getting your two black holes, which are quite a long way away from each other, into the centre next to each other. And when they're only a few light years apart from each other, then their whole emission process will be dominated by gravitational waves, and then they'll just crash into each other. How long will it take for each of these phases of two black holes getting close to each other, roughly? (laughs) A long time. Um, I'm not sure the numbers off the top of my head. I know anything that we might be able to detect will have an orbital period of only years to, to tens of years. And so, and those will coalesce on that sort of time scale. Mm-hmm. So when it's in a gravitational wave emitting regime, it will coalesce very, very fast. But in terms of this dynamical friction to get them together, I don't think that's very well understood for how long that will take. So let's say we've got two black holes orbiting each other quite closely, so they're getting close to this final merging event. They're throwing out gravitational waves, but at what frequency? So the frequency is proportional to the orbital um, period. So if the, if the stars are going around each other in a few years, then the gravitational waves will also have a period of a few years. So the gravitational waves we're likely to see will be on timescales of months to years. Hmm. We can't see ones much longer than that because we've only been timing our pulsars on timescales of a few years, and we can't see gravitational waves on timescales much shorter than that because we only observe our pulsars once every fortnight or so. This brings us back to the uh, Parkes Pulsar Timing Array. What pulsars are you looking at? All of them or some of them? Which ones? So we've chosen the 20 most stable pulsars that we can see from the, the Parkes from the Parkes Telescope. So pulse, some pulsars are very irregular, they glitch, their, their rotation rate suddenly changes, they're just not stable objects. Whereas other pulsars are probably the most stable objects in the universe. And so we've picked the most stable ones and really there's only about 20 that are particularly useful, and it's those 20 we've chosen. What do you expect to observe first using these 20 pulsars? Do you expect to see a gravitational wave, or do you expect to see a hint of a gravitational wave? What's the first thing you're going to see with these things? As we keep observing these 20 pulsars, and we keep improving our systems for making the observations, and we just observe for longer and longer then we'll start to see the arrival times of these pulses not being exactly when when we're predicting them to be arriving. And they'll be changing by of the order 10 to 100 nanoseconds, which is the level we need to look for them. There's two types of systems that we might be seeing. If there's just a single source out there, so just somewhere in the universe there's one big binary black hole system, then that will induce a sinusoidal signal in our in our timing. So for that we'll just be looking for a sine wave, with an amplitude of around this 100 nanoseconds. And that would tell us there is a single black hole system out there, and by looking at the timing of different pulsars, we'll actually better say where in the sky this is coming from. 
it's probably more likely that there isn't just one of these, but there's actually lots of these um, binary black holes. And in that case, we'll just see some random noise in our timing. And the way we were to say that this random noise is due to a gravitational wave background is looking at the timing in different pulsars and seeing if it's correlated or not. So even though it looks like it's completely random noise, as you say, if you're looking at two pulsars at the same time, they're showing the same noise? If the two pulsars are in the same direction, they'll almost be showing the same noise. If the two pulsars are separated by about 90 degrees, then the noise will be anti-correlated. So when one pulsar is arriving early, the other pulsar will be arriving late. So this degree of correlation between the signals coming from two pulsars separated by a certain angle on the sky is well known. We can compute this from our understanding of general relativity. Correct. So if you believe general relativity, you can predict that exactly. And if you have your own favorite theory of relativity, then that will also make some prediction that we can look for. Do you need a handful of 20 pulsars to do this, or just two pulsars? How many do you need? Well, with two pulsars, you don't get much of a a study of the correlation curve. So to make a definitive detection, we've shown that you really do need at least 20 pulsars. And to do a careful study of exactly what this correlation looks like, you probably need a lot more than that. So what's the way forward? Is it just to do the current observations longer for a longer period of time, or do you need better accuracy, or do you need more pulsars, or is it all of the above? All of the above. So I think the way forward is first we get one or two of our best pulsars, and we try and improve our timing, and we keep trying to improve our timing until we can't anymore. And that's probably because there is a gravitational wave background out there that's not allowing us to improve our timing anymore. Now, it could also be due to systematic effects or anything else. So once we're at this level, we then need to prove it's a gravitational wave background. And to do that, we need about 20 pulsars at that sort of level. So somehow we'll need to combine data from the Parkes telescope with the various European telescopes and the North American telescopes to have enough pulsars where we can do that. On the longer term, we want to really study this background and understand the gravitational waves and where they're coming from and what are their properties. And to do that, we'll probably need hundreds of pulsars, and for that, we will need a completely new telescope. Um, the Square Kilometre Array, which is this telescope that might be built you know, in 20 years or so, would be an absolutely ideal telescope for really studying the gravitational wave signals. One interesting point to put all of this into context is, have we actually detected any gravitational waves at all? No. But um, we, we know that they exist. We know that they exist, so... Um, in the 1970s, a pulsar system was discovered where there was a pulsar going around a neutron star and it's losing energy and you can measure how, how it's losing energy. So the energy loss is predicted exactly by the emission of gravitational waves from this system. So we believe gravitational waves exist and we've got this system where it looks like gravitational waves must be being emitted from this system but no one has ever seen those gravitational waves. It's just that gravitational wave emission is predicted by general relativity and it matches the observations perfectly. So yep. that explains the, what, what we see. How, how actually do we measure this loss of energy in the pulsar system? Basically, you study the orbit of the... So you can work out the orbital period and um, all the other Keplerian parameters of this system and you notice that the orbital period is changing hmm. as you observe it over 20 years or so. And how that's changing is predicted exactly by by this emission of gravitational waves. So we know that gravitational waves are being emitted. We can't directly detect them. Correct. 
So people have been looking for gravitational waves since about the 1960s. So far, nobody has found them. <laughs> so hopefully pulsar timing arrays will be the first detection of gravitational waves. It's a little bit of a competition, but yep, that's what so you it do, could you, well be. You do see yourself in competition with uh, the likes of LIGO and, and LISA? Yes, so uh, there's, there's two things. There's always a competition to make the first detection. If we can improve our timing a little bit, we reckon on a time scale of 5 to 10 years, we should be able to make a detection. It's unlikely that LISA will even be flying on that sort of time scale, so they're not likely to make the first detection. LIGO is going through an, an enhancement at the moment, which means there's a possibility on a time scale of a three to five years it might make a detection. But advanced LIGO, which is almost guaranteed, is probably not until another five years after that, so ten years or so from now. So we're all around the same sort of time scale for when we might make a detection. But you're talking about um, doing research with data in hand. I mean, you've done these observations of these pulsars up until, up until now with some degree of accuracy that you could use for, for this research. So you've got all the data. We've got some data, let's yep. say, up to now, and now you're making some predictions on how much more data you will need to rule out um, various um, scenarios for gravitational waves, yes? That's correct. Mm. So at the moment, we haven't made a detection, but we've certainly said that if there was a gravitational wave background that's, that was very very strong, we would have seen it. We haven't seen it, so we can rule out some models of gravitational waves. Great. Well, we look forward to more results. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks. So there you go. Interesting research from George Hobbs. Now, George was a PhD student here at Dodger Bank Observatory before heading off to um, uh, regions south. And now to somebody else who has flown the coop, at least for a time, Dave Alt has been taking some time off from his normal Jodcast editing duties to perform Shakespeare in India. Here is a quick message from Dave. Hello once again from India. Now one of the things I'm being spoilt by is constant, beautiful, clear night skies. I haven't seen a cloud in weeks, and uh, it's great that I can actually see how the sky is moving around, how the moon is moving around, seeing the summer triangle right up above, Venus getting closer to Jupiter in the early evening sky. And I just wanted actually to say something about what happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, because in the October issue of the Jodcast, you may remember that Ian Morrison told us about uh, the moon being very low in the east on the 26th of October. And just by pure chance, I was woken up woken up on the morning of the 26th of October by a dog barking in the street outside and I went outside and there directly facing me was the moon a beautiful thin crescent and with Saturn above and for the first time in my life I have knowingly looked at Mercury which was something quite incredible for me and to hear Ian Morrison again saying about it in that issue of the Jodcast, it, it really brought it home. I've actually seen Mercury. And I'm looking forward to the 1st of December, when there will be Venus and Jupiter and a thin crescent moon in the early evening sky. So I'm really looking forward to that, and being able to, in fact, perform Shakespeare underneath it. A lovely triple conjunction there. Right, well, that's it from me, and I will hopefully be back on the Jodcast very soon. So to all listeners out there, Jod on. And we'll do just that by going straight on to Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien. 
Okay, and it's Ask an Astronomer time with Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks again for coming along and answering questions, Tim. Hi again. First question is from Malcolm Powell, and he writes that on Monday, 20th October, between 10 and 11 a.m., he noticed half a full moon in the west, apparently about twice the altitude of the sun, which was low in the south-southwest. Running my eye along a line, he writes, connecting the moon with the sun, I was struck by the fact that this line did not appear to be perpendicular to the lunar terminator, as I would have expected. In fact, the terminator seemed to be tipped back by about 20 degrees, as if the moon were being illuminated by a sun higher in the sky. My question is, is this an optical illusion, perhaps related to the moon seeming larger when close to the horizon, or is there some other explanation ah right okay so let's um this is a good question really um let's just sort of explain that again um in in simpler terms probably it's just the idea that you know when you look at the moon uh at different times then it has a an apparently different shape because it's of course it's a it's more or less like a sphere a ball um and and it's lit from different angles by the sun so if it's lit sort of virtually face on you'd see a full moon it'd look more like like a circle in the sky if it's lit from the side if so if the sort of angle between the uh relative angle between the us to the moon to the to the sun was sort of 90 degrees ish so it's lit side on you'd see half a moon because you'd see the side of the moon lit up that the the sun was on Uh, and at other angles you see crescent moons or uh, of various uh, amounts so uh, so here what he's imagining is imagining that picture of phases of the moon and he's seeing a half moon in the sky and he can see the lit side of it and as he's looking at the moon he sees that that lit side is sort of tilted back so the the lit side is sort of pointed upwards and to his left if he's looking um looking west in in in, in the sort of northern hemisphere so it's sort of tilted tilted up to the side um and then he sort of looks round the sky um running from the west running southwards and round to where the sun is um, and in fact, I notice a deliberate mistake in his in his uh, in his uh, message there, which he says the sun's in the south southwest, and it's it's the morning. So in fact, the sun must have been in the south southeast, I think, just before midday. Um, but uh, but as you as you sort of work your way in the sky, sure enough, it's sort of ninety degrees roughly round round the sky, which is what you'd expect for a half moon. But you know, there were I think he says actually the sun's at a slightly uh, lower altitude in the sky than the moon is. And and so why is the lit side of the moon sort of pointed upwards? Well, it should be somewhat pointed slightly downwards if if, yes. if the moon sli- if the sun's slightly lower in the sky. So it's a bit, you know, you can imagine why that's a bit confusing actually. Now, of course, the prob the problem really here is what's a straight line. So he's sort of he's imagining this straight line on the sky as he's sort of looking as he sort of turns around from the from the moon towards the sun and then back again. And in fact, that's um, that's not the line along which the light would be travelling from the from the sun to the moon. Um, I don't know whether you've heard of uh, heard of the ecliptic, um, but the the ecliptic is the is the plane um, is a plane, a flat surface, effectively, um, within which all the planets revolve, roughly, approximately, as they orbit the sun. Um, and you know the moon orbits the Earth in not quite in the ecliptic, but almost. It's slightly angled to the ecliptic. And basically, you can imagine the sort of planets all orbiting around the sun like that, and the moon orbiting the Earth. So, as you look up in the sky, you see um, you see the a line on the sky. If you ever see any planets, any bright planets, they're always sort of distributed along this ecliptic. Um, 
So, you know, you could imagine them a longer line in the sky. So you'd see the Sun, you might see Venus, Mercury, any other planets. They tend to be distributed along this line. Now, that line is not a, a sort of straight line. It's a curve. It sort of rises up in the east and it sets down again in the west. And it's because of the tilt relative to the plane of the orbits of all these planets in the in the solar system. And it's the same with the moon, because the moon's roughly orbiting in that plane. Again, that, that, that angle, that line which you should be drawing, which is actually a flat plane, appears as a curve in our sky as we look at it because of the tilt. So what you'd have to, what you'd have to do, actually, um, is imagine a curved line that's set off at the moon, in, in this case, that's set off the moon and it sort of went higher in the sky, curved up, and then over through south and down again towards, towards where the sun was. And if you can see that, that line, that plane of the ecliptic, you can imagine it drawn as a line on the sky, that hits the the moon perpendicular to this terminator. The terminator is the is the line on the moon that that, that is the border between the lit part of the moon, the illuminated part of the moon, and the dark part, the dark unilluminated side. So so that terminator, yes, it is perpendicular to the ecliptic, but it's not perpendicular to a line that you can draw between the sun and the moon as you view it. And it's because of that tilt. So in fact, you could. In fact, we just had. Um, we just we 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 just had a, a fun time in my office, Stuart and me, just uh, drawing these pictures on my whiteboard to convince <laughs> ourselves that physics was in fact true. So we've decided that this this definitely all works. And yes, the the the, the Terminator is always perpendicular to the ecliptic rather than to the direct line you would you, line of sight you would draw on the sky. I hope that makes a little bit more sense. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you to Malcolm for the question. It's a very good question. Next up is a question from Mark Ashley, and he writes about modified Newtonian dynamics. What is MOND? MOND is an alternative theory of gravity. And Mark Ashley writes, How can we be so sure that everyone else is right and the MOND theorists are wrong? It wouldn't be the first time in science that a long-established and widely held belief is challenged by a crackpot theory. Right, yeah, so okay, so what's what's going on here is this, uh, what he's worried about um, is that there's this, it's this MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics, is an alternative to dark matter. What happened really is that um, dark matter was sort of introduced as a, as an explanation for, at least, at least early on, as an explanation for what are called rotation curves of galaxies. So it's this observation that um, galaxies are rotating faster than they ought to be for the amount of material that we can actually see. So people look at galaxies and you sort of add up all the mass that you can see, all the stars and the gas and everything else that's radiating. You estimate how much mass there must be there, and that would tell you how fast the galaxy ought to be spinning, just like the mass of the sun, which dominates the, the mass in the solar system. That The mass of the sun determines how fast the planets would be rotating in Kepler's laws. So you do that and you find out, oh dear, um, the galaxy's spinning uh, rather faster than it should be for the amount of mass that's there. So the idea was that there's some mass there that we can't see. It's dark matter. Uh, it's not radiating. Now, um, you know, we've struggled to find dark matter. We we think these days that it's probably some form of some exotic sort of uh, subatomic particle, um, and there are candidate particles for this, and people um, are various different laboratories around the world are beavering away trying to find these actual particles, and it may be that at some point in the near or distant future we will actually find the, the dark matter particle that explains um, explains this behaviour. However, there are alternatives, uh, and one alternative is is MOND, where actually what's done is to say, well, actually, maybe uh, the problem is 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 not 
we don't explain this by putting in some extra matter that we can't see. We explain it by slightly changing our laws of gravity. So it's a modification to Newton's uh, laws of gravity. And so they are changed in a certain way and there's different ways of doing it um and and actually can you know the question is can a can a slightly modified law of gravity explain the as an example the rotation curves of galaxies um and you can do that you know it's possible to 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 make that work uh and here we are we're stuck between these two you know there's there's two alternatives there's plenty of other areas of astronomy where these questions come to burn not just rotation curves of spiral galaxies and it's a very complicated issue but yeah we're we're sitting here at the moment with this example with these two alternatives and the question is which is better to 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 postulate the existence of this particle which we've yet to discover or to postulate that actually we need to change our our equations somewhat to 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 uh, to fit the observations and i would say that i think one important point to make is that mond isn't really regarded as a crackpot theory so so it's you know probably a little unfair to describe it in those it's not so although it's true that dark matter would be the sort of mainstream uh, theory um that most people would adhere to for various reasons as not ju- not just for rotation curves of galaxies um people don't dismiss mond out of hand and in fact people are uh, serious people are working away on these theories and trying to find predictions and testing them against observations and so on and it may be that that it will come to pass that that, that it will you know that something like mond may turn out to be the best explanation but people are working on it it's certainly not dismissed out it's certainly not dismissed out of hand and i think people i think it was uh, uh, last year we had a I think you did an interview with... It was uh, Benoit Femme, uh, all about Mond as his main research area. So if anybody is interested, you can go back through the Jodcast archive and uh, listen to that interview. It was very good. Yeah, we'll put a link on the uh, on the website for, for this month's uh, mm. edition as well. Or you could just put in uh, Mond into the search string on the Jodcast page and it should take you to that interview. So thank you very much, Mark, for that question. Next one comes from Owen Graham. And he writes that if, as I have read in several respectable books recently, the temperature and density of the universe at the moment of the Big Bang was infinite, then how is it now finite, as the only reason the temperature pressure has reduced is because space has expanded, thereby spreading out the energy and mass, and infinite is, by definition, indivisible. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, I mean, this is a you know difficult question because we're talking about what, what physicists, mathematicians would often call a singularity, mm-hmm. which is this a point where things become infinite, uh, and of course that's a challenge. You know, mathematically, physically, it doesn't make any sense, right, to have these infinities. So I think probably um, I would. St- I think the better way to think about this really is to imagine instead of winding the clock forward. From, from t equals zero, from the, from the, the moment of creation, if you like, the, uh, the point of the Big Bang, where all these infinities are involved, instead of thinking of it in that direction, think of it in the other direction, where time goes backwards. And so we have a position now, for example, where the, the, the space, space between things is expanding, so distances between objects are increasing between clusters of galaxies, for example. Wind the clock back. Um, those distances get shorter and shorter. Um, what it means is the density of the universe gets higher and higher. And obviously, as you get come to a, a, t- a point in time close to the Big Bang, then the density of the universe is becoming extremely high, the temperature is becoming extremely high. And if you carry on that process to a point t equals zero, then yes, the density will become infinite. Um, but it doesn't, it hasn't, um, it has that, ha- that fact hasn't, uh, 
invalidated the fact that sometime after t equals zero, the density wasn't infinite. It was finite because we've just wound the clock backwards, compressing things. And you could do that with anything in the room. You know, we could take one of our microphones here and it's got a finite density at the moment. You know, the mass is spread over a certain volume. We could squash and squash and squash and squash that, increasing the density. And yeah, if we could do that right back to a, a point where um, the atoms were squashed right into each other, then the density could become infinite and become a singularity. It doesn't invalidate the fact that it wasn't a singularity or it was a finite density at some time after that. Mm. It's just a mathematical property of winding the clock back, of compressing distances to zero. And I would say that what we do in practice, you know, when people are, when you're calculating, for example, very successful prediction of the Big Bang is the, is the origin of the chemical elements, the light elements, hydrogen, helium, deuterium, down at the sort of bottom end of the periodic table or top end if you draw a periodic table um then um then you know what we're talking about is what's happening in those few minutes few seconds after the big bang and we can keep winding the clock backwards we do understand the physics that would go on quite well actually in those sorts of and those sorts of conditions and so yeah i think i think we're we're happy with that yep if you wind it right back to equal zero yep you do get infinities and yet we don't understand infinities and it's a problem but we do understand what comes after that very good. So thank you very much to Owen for your question and to Mark and Malcolm for their questions. Thank you very much to Tim for answering them. And if you've got any questions about astronomy or astrophysics or cosmology or anything to do like that, go to the Ask an Astronomer page on the Jodcast website and send us your questions. So lots of great questions there coming in from listeners. Thank you very much to all those who have sent us in their questions. And if you've got any questions about astronomy, as I say, please do send them to us via the Ask an Astronomer page on the Jodcast website. They are really good questions and they do make us think quite a lot. Certainly. And particularly the ones about, the one about the, uh, the Terminator on the moon and its orientation with respect to the position of the sun in the sky. Tim has very kindly produced some images from Stellarium illustrating what the, uh, the, the the apparent problem is. Do check that out. They've got links on the uh, Jodcast site, and uh, yeah, so you can see what the problem is. If you've got the, if you see the moon and the Terminator does not seem to be perpendicular to a line drawn from the moon to the sun, it seems a little bit odd. But when you draw on the ecliptic, that is the path which the sun and the moon and the planets appear to take in the sky, then it all becomes clear. So do check out those images, and it will help immensely. I think. So let's move on to the feedback from our dear listeners. We had an email from Edward Ratzer, from Liam Howe, and from Lucky Green. Thank you to all those people. Chris Swales of Hamilton Zoo Park says that he listens to the Jodcast while preparing food for animals in the kitchen. Mark Ashley, under the relatively dark skies of Dorset, says that his 11-year-old son thought our Sounds of the Universe was way, way cool, which is also good to know. Also thanks to Philip Lariche and Natasha Waterson for sending us links to two other podcasts to add to our astronomy media player. And just to remind you about that, on the Jodcast website, if you click on Astro Player, you'll get a list of other podcasts from around the world about astronomy that you can listen to in between listening to the Jodcast. And finally, thanks to Douglas Thompson, who points out that there's now spare airtime on BBC Radio 2 and BBC Television um, that might need filling, so he suggested that perhaps we should go for it. Thank you for that suggestion. We'll bear it in mind. Um, and if you don't hear from us next month, then you'll know why. We have been swept up by the BBC to do astronomy podcasting, but we can't do it for free. On the Facebook wall, we have a couple of posts. One by Ralph Goodwin, who writes that as a five-year-old in the mid-60s, he used to live in Denton in Manchester. And he used to see the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank Observatory occasionally when they were driving past. 
He now lives in Sydney, Australia, and enjoys listening to the Jodcast on his evening walks under their amazing southern skies. Another wall post from Nick Howes, who says, Outstanding podcast, and by far the finest example of science outreach podcasting on Facebook. So thank you very much to Ralph and Nick for those wonderful words. And thank you to everyone who sends us feedback. It really does remind us why we do the Jodcast, and makes us feel all nice and warm and fuzzy inside. And you can send us feedback of your own by going to the Jodcast website at jodcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast, on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast, and on Facebook by joining the Jodcast group. So that brings us to the end of this edition. That just leaves us to say thank you to George Hobbs, to Tim O'Brien, and to all of you for downloading us. So until the December issue, Jod on. Jod on, everybody. <laughs>